Well, if you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of James, chapter 5. And while you're turning there, I want to read to you from another passage of Scripture, Acts chapter 16. Just listen on. We'll be in James in a few moments. Verse 25 of Acts 16 says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They were in chains. They were in prison. They were praying. Verse 26 says, Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. One thing that we have said in recent weeks as we've gone through this series on prayer is that there is nothing better to be better at than prayer. And if you don't know if that is true, just ask Paul and Silas on this day when the chains fell off and the doors came open. Our goal in these weeks is to really learn how to pray. Uh, most Christians have a desire for a greater, healthier prayer life than what they truly experience. And so we've said that we'll take several weeks, we'll go through this slowly and carefully, but we'll look at what the Bible has to say about how to pray. And our hope is, our aim is that at the end of this series that we're calling our school of prayer, that all of us will be good at prayer. And so we began by talking about the foundation. We talked about some important things you need to know even before you begin to pray. Then we talked about the secret to prayer. We said that there was one thing that is the key to being a great man or woman of prayer. And then we began to talk about these models for prayer. I said I would give you three models. We're starting with the first one, C-H-A-T, having a chat with God. C stands for confess, H stands for honor or praise the Lord, A stands for ask, and T stands for thanksgiving. This is how I pray almost every single day, C-H-A-T, we're walking through that model now. And then we're going to learn how to pray the scripture, and finally, we'll come to the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, we've saved the best for last, and through these models for prayer, I think we'll all become prayer warriors. So we're looking at the chat model right now. We spent a week talking about how we confess our sins. We spent a week talking about how to honor God or praise God. Today I want us to begin to talk about how to ask. This is what people think about. When we think about prayer, they usually think about things I'm going to ask the Lord. Ask for myself, my family, people I know and care about, my church, my country. Prayer for most people is asking God. And so we'll learn what the Bible says about this. There are three things we need to know about asking God. We need to know why we should ask. That's what we're going to talk about today. And then we need to know how we're to ask it. And then finally, exactly what we should ask for. Now, I tried to figure out a way to get all of this in one message, and it just wasn't possible. And, and at the same time, do a comprehensive job. So we're going to look at the first part today. We'll look at the next two parts next week, and we'll learn how to ask the Lord. So there's much to say today, I'm gonna to jump right in. There are three things you need to know about asking. We're gonna talk about the potential of prayer, and then in a moment, we'll show all this to you on the screen later, but we're gonna talk about the timing of prayer and the authority of prayer, but let's just begin with its potential. The potential of prayer, it is exceedingly 
abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. Now, where do we find that? Well, we find that in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, a verse that every Christian ought to know. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, it talks about the power that's available to us when we pray. So how powerful is prayer? People often ask that question, what exactly can prayer accomplish? Well, I want to answer that question, but I want to begin by pointing out that it's not really a very good way to ask what we're asking. When we ask what is the power of prayer, we first need to understand that prayer, that's simply the words that we speak to a holy God. And those words have no power, right? There's no magical incantation. This is not a Harry Potter world. We can't place a curse on someone with our words. We can't pronounce blessings with our words. Our words have no energy to change circumstances or to affect the law of physics. There's no power in the prayer. There is power in the one to whom we pray. Does that make sense? Now that might seem like a distinction without a difference. You might be thinking, Pastor, that's just just semantics. We all know that there's no power to the words. The power is in the one to whom we share the words. But let's don't go too fast because I think often we get confused about this even the most basic truth of prayer. And I'll give you a couple of examples about how how we do this. We should know the most important thing about prayer is the God to whom we pray. And here's where we get that mixed up. Occasionally, I will hear well-meaning Christians say something like this. My aunt has cancer, and she's going to have surgery tomorrow, but I'm confident that everything will work out because we have 354 people praying for her. Now, have you heard that? Have you said that? And oftentimes we say those kinds of things as if the number of people praying is the point. That if we have 350 people praying, then certainly God is going to do something. If we just had 250 people praying, then God would probably ignore that. But we hit that 350 mark, so we know that God's going to answer answer the prayer. We treat prayer as if we are calling our congressman. You know, if you've got a Uh, a beef about some political matter, you can call your congressman and you can tell him or tell her that you wish that they would take this stand or some other stand and and they'll take note of how many people in their district are calling and demanding this or demanding that and that probably will influence how they do their legislation. And often I think we're thinking of God in those same terms that if we just have a, a, a large enough number of people who are voicing this prayer, then somehow that adds power to to the prayer. Well, let's talk about that. Is it important to have more people praying when we have a problem? Well, it's not a simple question because the answer is both yes and no. It is important in some sense. It's important because when we ask someone to pray, we are declaring that we trust the Lord in this matter. When one of you calls me and says, Pastor, would you pray for such and such? 
I know that you're trusting the Lord for that. When I call you and ask you to pray, and I ask you to pray specifically about something, I am declaring my trust in the Lord. So in that sense, it's great to ask a bunch of people to pray. It's also helpful in the sense that it demonstrates our desperation before the Lord. Jesus gives a parable in Luke chapter 18 that that teaches us that when we come before the Lord with a desperate heart, that that rings in heaven in a special way and God honors that desperate plea. And when we're asking more and more people to pray, it communicates that desperation to the Lord. It's also good because the more people who pray, when God answers the prayer, that's just that many more people who will celebrate God's answer. And the Bible says that in 2 Corinthians 1.11. Also, God honors the church when it loves and cares for the church. And so when we're sharing prayer requests and the Bible tells us to do that, then that honors the Lord because God is pleased when his church does that. So in that sense, it's good to ask 354 people to pray or 30,000 people to pray perhaps. But listen, church, the more people who pray, that does not somehow ring a bell in heaven that says this is a popular movement and so God should pay more attention to it because it's more popular than some single prayer that might be prayed. It's not that God in heaven fears some uprising on the earth and so he gives special attention when more people pray the same prayer. It's not that we're casting our vote in heaven. No, we should remember that the focus of prayer is not the prayer, it is the God to whom we pray. I'll give you another example that that shows us the same thing. There are so many popular books now about prayer that treat prayer as if it is some Harry Potter magical spell, and if you'll just... If you'll just embrace some technique, if you just do something according to some trick that they have, then that moves God to answer the prayer in some extraordinary way. I read back through some of these books this week. And and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've read these. I I know that a lot of people here have, and and these aren't bad books. They they just take a different approach to prayer. So I reread this week, Praying for Your Elephant by Stant Miller, Stant Miller, I believe. And so he... You know, you'd, well, I won't tell you the book, but, but that's the book. And then Circle Prayer, the Circle Prayer, Praying Circles Around Your Biggest Enemies and Your Greatest Fears by Batterson. And then maybe more popular, but a few years old, uh, The Prayer of Jabez by Wilkerson. Some of you maybe have read that. So you can learn things from these books, but we have to be careful because oftentimes these books just treat prayer as some magical formula. And if you will identify your elephants and you will circle your fears in prayer, whatever that means, then God certainly will move and rescue and and do his thing. No, the point of prayer is not the technique, it is the person to whom we pray. The person to whom we pray. Now another part of that then, what we know about prayer then, is that the limit of prayer's power then equals the limit of God's power, right? Does that make sense? Prayer can do anything God can do. And prayer can do anything that God desires to do. And so if God is good and kind and loving and God is all powerful, then there's no limit to what can happen when we pray. I'll share with you just a few verses that remind us 
of just what could happen. Jeremiah 33, 3, call to me and I will answer you. I will tell you great and incomprehensible things that you do not know. Psalm 91, 15, when he calls out to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and give him honor. Jesus said, Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Prayer is powerful because God is powerful and because God loves us. So that's the, that's the potential of prayer. Now let's take a minute and talk about the timing of prayer. The Christian's response to every situation. When should we pray? Next week we're going to talk about what we should pray for, but, but when should we pray? Well, you've turned in your Bibles to James chapter 5. We also have this for you on the screen. But I just want to read to you some of the many suggestions in the Bible that tell us when we should pray. Look at verse 13. It says, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. So what do we learn from that? If you're suffering, you should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. That's, that's prayer, singing it, but it's prayer. And so if you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, pray. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So if you're sick, you should pray. Verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So if you're guilty of sins, you should pray. Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And so if you have friends or family in need, you should pray. He goes on to say the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. We'll come back to that. Verse 17, Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. And then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. And so if you don't like the weather, well, we're going to talk about that next week, okay? <laughs> that, uh, that's a question we'll answer then. What the Bible teaches us just in that passage, and I'm going to show you some others, that no matter what's going on in our lives, good or bad, our response should be to pray. That should be our constant, every day, every hour, every moment, response to God should be prayer. We could turn to James chapter four, verse two, uh, where the Bible says, you desire and you do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and wage war, you do not have because you do not ask. We're to pray. And so many times when we don't have the things that we think that we should have, it's because we haven't prayed. The problem with our self-sufficient, roll up your shirt sleeves, I can do anything I set my mind on attitude today is that that is not how God ever intended for us to live. Prayer should not be a last resort. Prayer should not be what we do when we can't find any other way. Prayer should be our response. Every moment with every event, good or bad, expected or surprised, we should pray. That should be our constant response to the Lord. There are two parts of this I want to highlight. First of all, without prayer, you will accomplish less. If you choose to live without prayer, 
you will accomplish less than you would have had you, had you prayed. I think about uh, the story in Mark chapter 9, and it's found in some of the other gospels as well. Uh, but Jesus has separated from the disciples for a time. He's on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the disciples are waiting for him. And a father brings his son, and his son is possessed by a demon. And it's causing all kinds of problems. And the father says to the disciples, I was looking for Jesus. Can't find him. You'll have to do. Can you handle the problem? And the disciples said, of course we can handle the problem. We've seen Jesus do this dozens of times. Bring the boy over. We'll take care of it. And they tried and they failed. And they tried and they failed. And they tried and they failed. And then finally Jesus shows up. He takes care of the problem. He, he cast out the demon. The boy is fine. The father and the boy leave. And then the disciples pull Jesus aside and they ask an important question. They say, why were we not able to do it? You did it. We couldn't do it. Why? And listen to the answer. Mark chapter 9, verse 29. This kind can come out by nothing but prayer. Jesus said, the problem is not your technique. The problem is your prayer. There are some problems that you face in life that God will not allow those problems to be solved in any way other than prayer. There are some things you can beat your head against the wall for years, for decades. But until you pray, it'll never be solved. I'll confess something this morning. And something that God has uh, taught me in the last couple of years and had a conversation with somebody about this this week here at the church and it reminded me. Uh, so I have three daughters, uh, many of you know that, good kids, uh, never been in trouble, love the Lord. Uh, parenting, though, uh, I can tell you is the hardest job in the world. Uh, but honestly... I didn't know that until recently. If you would have asked me two years ago if parenting was hard, I would have shrugged my shoulders and I would have said, no, not with my girls. That is not what I would say today. Now, it's not because my kids have rebelled. I think all three of my daughters have a more vibrant faith than they've perhaps ever had. They're succeeding in school. It's not a problem. I have learned that parenting is hard because in the last two years, I've recognized that I am no longer in control. I'm not in control of what they do. I'm not in control of who they hang around with. I cannot insulate them from ungodly influences. And so over the last year or two, I've changed my parenting focus today most of my parenting is done on my knees in prayer. Now, why is that? I'm just going to be honest with you. It is because I don't know anything else to do. <laughs> prayer is the only tool I have left. But here's the lesson. Prayer is not only the only tool I have left. Prayer is the best tool I've ever had. And the lesson reminds me that while I, in the last two years, have recognized that I'm not in control of things, uh, 
the truth is I never was in control. And my biggest regret in the first 20 years of my parenting career is that honestly, I treated praying for my kids as a secondary thing. Secondary to what I thought was my wise leadership. I'll just point them in the right direction. But I recognize now, as I said, the best tool I ever had was to pray. There are things that can happen that can be accomplished in prayer that cannot be accomplished in any other way. And without prayer, you will accomplish less. But there's another part of that. Without prayer, you will, what you do accomplish will be meaningless. Not only will it be less, it'll be meaningless. Uh, just, it's not just a matter of what we accomplish, but it's a matter of how significant that is and how long it lasts and what is the true value. And I'm afraid that much of what you and I do all day, every day has little value. We live Sisyphean lives. Do you know what that is? Uh, Sisyphus, uh, the myth of Sisyphus uh, by Homer is that he was punished uh, by Zeus. These are made up people, of course. He was punished by Zeus and his punishment was to push this great boulder up a mountain. And he pushes and he pushes and, and, he, and, and it's hard and it's difficult and it's, and, and, and it's, it, it's all consuming. And he, and he gets the boulder nearly to the top of the mountain and, and it rolls back down to the bottom. So he goes to the bottom and he pushes again and he pushes again. And, 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 and according to this myth, over and over and over for the rest of his days, he's just pushing a rock up the hill and he accomplishes nothing. And I'm afraid so many times without prayer, the things that we do accomplish nothing. We work hard, we sweat, we give it our best, but God wants to put his own stamp of approval on things that only comes through prayer. And so if we don't pray, we accomplish, if we don't pray, we accomplish less, but also what we do accomplish is meaningless. Listen to how the Bible says it in Psalm 127, one, unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. Are we making a difference or are we spinning our wheels? Think about this. Parents, are you making a difference in the lives of your kids with all the things you're doing or are you spinning your wheels? Think about this, college students. Are you making a difference or are you spinning your wheels? Listen, with our careers, with our ministries, are we really making a difference or are we just pushing a boulder up a hill that's bound to roll right back down? And so we see the the timing of our prayer, we should be praying all the time. All the time should be the response to everything that happens in life. And then the third thing I want you to see is the authority of prayer in Jesus' name. Uh, why do we have, how do we have influence with God? Well, the truth is we don't have any influence with God. Who am I to go before God and demand something? I haven't lived a life worthy to go before God. I am not perfect enough. I'm not righteous enough to go before God. I don't have any influence with God. But listen, Jesus does. 
Now, this is an important thing to learn. If we don't learn this, we'll never learn to pray because we'll misunderstand the authority of prayer. The Bible says, and I'm going to show you this verse on the screen because it's so important. John 14, 13, whatever you ask, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. What he's talking about here is the authority. I don't have authority to go before God, but Jesus has authority. And so if I'm going to go before God, if I'm going to pray, I don't come before God in my name. I come before God in Christ's name. Now, I want to explain that several different ways because it's so important. I want you to understand, and one of these will click with everybody. Uh, imagine if you were to go to the bank that has my money and you were to march in and say, I want Noel's money. I want $1,000 out of Noel's account. I want Noel's money. Now, what do you think they would say? What should they say? No, no, because you don't have the authority to go to my bank and demand my money. But if you were to go to the bank with a check, with my check, and it was made out to you, and it said $1,000, and it had my name on the signature line, and you were to present that check, that check is the authorization, and you, and you could say, I want $1,000 of Noel's money, and here's the authorization. I'm coming not in my name, I'm coming in his name, and it's written on this check. Well then, if I had the $1,000, not sure, they would give it to you, right? Because you're, not, you're coming in my name. When we go before the Father, we have to come in Jesus' name. We don't have any merit. We don't have any standing. But Jesus has standing. Let me explain it a little different way. There are some verses in Scripture that have upset me for a long, long time. And, and there's several of them. And in the full outline, if you want to check it out on the website in a couple of days, uh, I list several that I don't have time to talk about today. But I'll share a couple of them with you. And these are verses that are just upset me. One is James 5.16 that we read a moment ago. Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. It's the second part of the verse that's upset me. It says, the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful. That's what it says. And then Psalm 66, 18 says, if I had been aware of malice in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And so the verse, first verse says that if I'm a righteous person, then, then my prayers will have some great effect. The second verse says that if, if there is any sin in my life, then God won't listen to my prayers. Now, why have those verses upset me? Well, exactly because I know I'm not a righteous person. And when I pray, I know that I have harbored sin in my heart and I come before the Lord and I'm praying for the church and for my ministry and for my wife and my kids. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, no, you're not righteous. You're not righteous. Why are you praying? You're not righteous. You're not righteous. And so the Lord has given me, I think, a better perspective on these verses. And I think this, uh, this is true to the intent of scripture. Uh, certainly these verses do tell us that we should come before the Lord with clean hands and a pure heart. They are an encouragement to live a, a godly life. And that's important in our prayers. We're going to talk about that next week. But there's something else here. This is a reminder that while I'm not righteous, Christ is righteous. Right? And so if, 
If I came in my name, if it were just about me, the Bible says the prayer of a righteous man is effective. If it were just about me, my prayers would never be effective because I'm not a righteous man. But, but, but because I come in the name of Christ and Christ is righteous, then those prayers have great effects. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that that God has made me because of the sacrifice of Jesus, that God has made me into the righteousness of Christ. And so we do come not by our righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ. I think there's another way of looking at this. Uh, hang with me. I really want you to understand this point. Uh, I think we ought to ask the question, why do we say at the end of our prayers, the phrase in Jesus' name. Have you ever thought about that? Do you say the, the phrase in Christ's name or in Jesus' name when you finish praying? I think I do about 99% of the time. We, we end it. We just tag that little line on there. In Jesus' name. In Christ's name we pray. Have you ever wondered why we do that? Uh, I, I was having a conversation this week with someone who had a great suggestion he said, maybe we ought to say it instead of the end of our prayers, we ought to say it at the beginning of our prayers. And I thought, well, that's a really good point. If, if I'm coming under the authority, in the authority of Christ, maybe I don't tag that on to the end. I say that right at the beginning. Father, I'm coming to you right now in the name of Jesus and by the righteousness of Jesus. But, but why do we say those words at all? Have you ever wondered that? Where did that come from? Why do we say in Jesus' name we pray? Now, this will surprise some people, so hold on to your seat for a moment. That is never, never, ever, never found in the Bible. Did you know that? Now, there's John 14, 13 that says we should pray in the name of Jesus, but it never says we should say the name of Jesus, that we're praying in the name of Jesus. And nowhere in the Bible does anybody ever say in the name of Jesus. Never happens in the Gospels. Never happens in the book of Acts. And there are dozens of prayers in the book of Acts. It never happens in the epistles. It never happens, of course, in the Old Testament, but it never happens anywhere in the New Testament. Never happens in the pastoral letters. Never happens in the book of Revelation. There are, there are dozens and dozens of examples of prayer and none of them end or begin with the phrase in Jesus' name or anything close to that. So, so honestly, why are we even praying those words at all? I did a little history check this week, and this won't interest everybody, but I, it interests me, so I'm the preacher. I get to decide we're going to talk about it. I, um, I, I, I was only able to do research in Greek and Latin and English because I don't know uh, German or French. I mean, I don't really know English very well either, but... But I did the best research I could do, and here's what I was able to find. I wonder, well, where, where did this come from? In Jesus' name we pray. And so I found that the Archbishop of Tours wrote it at the beginning of a prayer in a book that he wrote in Latin in the 5th century, so in the 400s. That's the first time uh, we ever see somebody saying this. And then somebody named a, by the name of Pepin, 300 years later, 8th century, said it in Latin, and I'm not exactly sure about that because the Latin was confusing. But uh, that, those are the only two references you can find in the first thousand years of the church. And then you go to the reformers, none of them ever said it. And then you go to the Puritans, and so if you just see where our faith came from, 
So after the first thousand years, it would have come through the reformers and then through the Puritans. Not a single Puritan ever said it. The first time it uh, appeared in English was in the Book of Common Prayer, an Anglican book, the 1689 edition. And it appeared in there several times. And so when people would quote that book, they would use it. But it never even made it in the common language of their prayers. And we know that because Matthew Henry, uh, some of you may have a Matthew Henry commentary. He wrote the definitive book of that generation on prayer in 1710. So this is just 21 years later. And he never mentioned it either as a good or bad example. So it wasn't something that really happened. So where did it come from? Well, 1840 in California, somebody named J.B. Waterbury, I have no idea who that is, he put it in a book called The Book of the Sabbath, and it caught on. And so it came from California. That doesn't make you want to pray it, right? And then it became common in America in the 1900s. You know, most people say it. I, uh, I have a... I have a record of everything, this name won't mean something to many of you, but, uh, but some of you will know the name Adrian Rogers, sort of my preaching hero of 25 years ago. Uh, I, I have a record of everything he ever said from a pulpit. Uh, it was all written down and I have a copy of it. And he said it 1,046 times. And so if he said it, then I want to say it, right? But it became ubiquitous in America and the English speaking world. What's the point of all that? Why am, I, why am I telling you that? There's nothing wrong with ending your prayer by saying in Jesus' name or in Christ's name. I mean, you should know that that's an American invention, but there's nothing wrong with saying it. Your pastor says it most of the time. I may stop, but I ordinarily say that. The important thing is not that we attach those words as if it were some magical password to God The important thing is that we really are coming to the Father in the name of Christ. It's not the tack on at the end of the prayer. I'm afraid that just confuses people. It's that we really do come to the Father saying, Father, the only way I could come is because Jesus, because I am in Christ and Jesus is worthy to come and I I come in his name. Let me explain it one last time then we'll move on. Uh, another historical example, R.A. Torrey, uh, an American uh, evangelist uh, at the turn of uh, century, a century ago, but he was preaching in Melbourne, Australia in 1899, and he was about to preach to a large congregation, and somebody handed him a note. It was anonymous, was unsigned, and he opened it, and here's how it read. Dear Dr. Torrey, I am in great perplexity. I have been praying for a long time for something that I am confident is according to God's will, but God hasn't done it yet. I want you to know that I've been a member of the church for 30 years, and I have been consistent all that time. I am a leader in our Sunday school, a ministry in our church, and have been so for 25 years. I have been a deacon, a faithful deacon for 20 years. Yet God still hasn't answered my prayer. Can you explain this? Can you explain this? And so Dr. Torrey read the letter to the congregation. And he said, you need to hear this because this is the lesson we should learn. 
I mean, here is this man who is upset that God hadn't answered his prayer because this man has prayed well. He has uh, been in church. He has been faithful. He has served. He has been a leader. And he's frustrated that God still hasn't answered his prayer. And Dr. Torrey said, here's an example of a man who is praying in his own name. Do you see that? Why did he think God would respond to his prayer? Because of his faithful church attendance. Because he had served as a a deacon or a leader. Because he had prayed a a fine-sounding prayer. He thought that God should answer the prayer because of his own characteristics, his own qualities, his own worthiness. Here's an example of a man coming in his own name. God's not going to answer your prayer because of who you are. God will hear your prayer because of who Jesus is. And so we come not in our name, but in his name. You know, I think I'm guilty of this uh, often. And, And you see if this sounds familiar. There are times when I have just lived particularly well. You know, I've gone through a period of time and I've walked the straight and narrow. And when I pray in those times, I just feel like God hears me because I'm more worthy to come before God. And then there are times when, frankly, I haven't walked the straight and narrow and I'm embarrassed to come to God because I think, oh, look at the sin in my life. I can't approach God. Now, if you've ever thought either one of those two things, you too are praying in your name. Because you've never been good enough to come to God, and you've never been so bad you couldn't come to God in Jesus' name. It doesn't depend upon you, it depends upon Christ. Now, there's some importance to living a godly life, and there is some connection with prayer, and we're going to talk about that next week. But but to come to the Father in the name of Jesus is to come because of what Christ has done, the life that Christ has lived, the righteousness of Christ. And so we see not only the the potential of prayer and the timing, we should do it all the time, but the authority. We should come in the authority of Christ. Now, I want to close by just pointing something out. Do you see how prayer is a gospel issue? The only way you can pray is that if you are in Christ. My sin separates me from God, and that means I will die and spend eternity separated from God. We know that. But not only does it mean that, but my sin has separated me from God so that I can't pray. I can't even call out to God except by Christ. Because Jesus lived a sinless life. Because Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Through Christ I can come to the Father. Now let's do this. Head bowed and eyes closed. I'm going to challenge you in two quick ways. We're learning how to pray. We're learning how to ask God for things. The first thing, those that know Christ as their Lord and Savior, I I admonish you, I challenge you, I ask you, let's make our prayers in the name of Jesus. I don't care if you say the phrase or not, doesn't hurt if you do, doesn't hurt if you don't. But I want... I want us to embrace the importance of coming not because of us or because of how we've lived or failed to come because of how we've lived. Let us learn to come acknowledging that we come in the name of Christ. But then here's the other other part of that. 
There are many people, I'm sure there are people right here in our congregations today, there are many people that can't pray because you're not in Christ. If you've never surrendered to Christ and trusted him for your forgiveness, if you've never made him the Lord of your life, then you can't pray. You can say all the words you want to say, and they will be meaningless and powerless. If the Holy Spirit is drawing your heart, you feel a conviction for your sins today, would you say today, Father, forgive me because of what Christ has done. And I want to be in Christ. I want to be forgiven because of him. I want to be heard because of him. And I trust what he has done and I surrender my life to him. And when we do that, then we can come boldly, as the Bible says, boldly before the throne of grace. Father in heaven, I come to you right now in the name of Christ. That's the only way I could come. But because Christ has made it possible, I come and I ask you to work in the hearts, my heart and the heart of everyone who hears my voice so that we might be drawn to you knowing that our only hope is in Christ. Our only hope is in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.